another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, dictated is is almost always the case. Uh, During my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, what's different about today is this morning we had a, let's call it a recorder malfunction, somewhat operating induced and somewhat device induced uh, that prevented me from doing a show uh, for Monday morning of this week. So this show is probably going to go out tomorrow morning and I'll get ahead of things for the week and probably just do four shows for the week. But what I'm actually doing is, this is a backwards show, a reverse show. We're doing this show in the afternoon on my commute home. Unfortunately you guys missed some real adventures this morning on my mobile podcast. Uh, I had to dodge and I mean absolutely swerve to the left, uh, hit the brakes so I could get behind the car to my left, and in, in one motion, cut in behind to avoid a rock, I swear to God, about the size of a softball coming at me right in the middle of the show, and the fact that that didn't get recorded for posterity in the uh, the uh, expurlatives that came out of my mouth, what I won't recreate, because they were just genuine, uh, were something to behold, and then there was like a plethora of idiots this morning on the road and you got some real good auto rants in in this episode so it's unfortunate I'm having to redo it and hopefully I'll do a good job with it but I just want to let you know some of the stuff that you guys missed thanks to a technology malfunction that uh, I've now got corrected um so what today's show is supposed to be about is uh, gardening and, and putting together raised beds. Specifically, though, composting and the need for compost and composting methods and using worms for your composting or vermicompost, vermicompost as they call it. And uh, but what I started off with is you know some of the reasons why I think it's so important to uh, to be upping our preps and not just in gardening and composting but in everything we're doing right now because I'm looking around the world and I'm starting to feel less and less comfortable with things. And remember, I'm the rational, sane voice in in survivalism. I'm the guy that calls a lot of people in our our midst the tinfoil hat brigade. I'm the one that says, relax, calm, be mellow. And some of these things are starting to make me really, really concerned. One, and I don't care if you voted for this president or not, but we have an incompetent president right now when it comes to dealing with Iran. Uh, Iran, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and the Middle East. The guy is sending signals of weakness and it's emboldening our enemies. And all you have to do is look at the comments that people like Amajinarod are, uh, are, are giving after he makes these statements to see what I mean by that. And, and that makes me nervous. We're, we're seeing a resurgence of you know uh, the the people with terrorist mindsets over in Pakistan trying to turn over that government and and that went on during the Bush administration too but now these people are emboldened and if the Taliban gets a hold of Pakistan 
If the, the, the Islamic extremists get a hold of the government in Pakistan, they have nuclear weapons. End of story. So we have that going on. Over in, in South America, down from us, we have Hugo Chavez, who has just been uh, given exemplary or some kind of extended powers as president of Venezuela, and, and that nation is turning into to Cuba, too. And, and that they have a lot more money and, and a lot more power and a lot more military force that they can bring to bear on the world than Cuba ever did. Even when the Soviets were helping the Cubans, they never had the power, uh, other than the fact they had some missile launchers there, but those were under Soviet control. Venezuela has control of their own armament, and they have a fairly uh, substantial uh, armed forces. I'm just looking at all of this stuff, and I look at this stimulus package and the, the absolute pork that's in it. We have a president standing up and telling us to our face there's no pork in the bill. I, I, I put that comment from President Obama right with the comment with President Clinton when he got angry and stuck his finger in the camera and said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. And he was lying to our face. But that was about sex. Bill Clinton, folks, a lot of things I didn't like about him, but I gave him a lot of slack because in many ways his administration was competent and the things that he got the most slack for, or the most flack for were, were nonsensical. I don't really care who he had sex with. That's between him and his wife and who he had sex with. Um, Clinton I can make a big case against for some of the military information that he sold to China and a lot of other things like the Whitewater Affair and on and on and on. But, you know, at least the guy was competent and his administration appeared competent. And now Obama's got Clinton's wife, Hillary, as Secretary of State, running over to China and Indonesia and doing a big, you know, first big world tour. And what they're supposed to be talking about is the economic problems of the world, but she's tagging along with that message, we need to worry about climate change. The two don't need to be put together. One is an immediate crisis now. The other one is, you know, junk science, folks. I'm sorry. If you believe in global warming and you're peed off whenever I talk about it, I'm sorry. The global warming science is junk science. And if you read both sides of the issue and all the data, you'll, with an open mind, you'll come to the same conclusion that everybody else that does that does is there's no clear scientific indication that humans are warming the temperature of planet Earth the end. But we're bringing that with us. We're not calling it global warming anymore. No, 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 no. We have to call it climate change because the planet has been dipping in temperature and dropping in temperature since 1998 we hit an all-time high. And the average global temperature has been in decline since 1998 when you look at all the data and it's definitely been in decline heavy decline if you want to talk about fractions of a degree because that's all we're talking about since 2004 we've been on a decline worst winters ever in some areas why do I care about that because this climate change thing I keep telling you folks this and those of you that are the enviro freaks don't get this it's not about the climate it's not about the environment it's not about green technology it's not about solar panels it's not about windmills and it's not about biodiesel that's not what this crap is about it's about global taxation it's about saying you have a big carbon footprint we need to tax you 
And you have a lot of money, so you should be giving more to help the earth. It is about creating a system of global taxation. And when you have global taxation, you have global government. You don't need to put the foil hat on. You don't need to worry about the Illuminati. You don't need to worry about the Bilderbergers. You don't need to worry about any of it. If you institute a system of global taxation, you have a system of global government immediately. Because the big problem with government isn't getting it in place. It's funding it. So you put the funding first and the government will follow behind it. That's what's being done. It's not a conspiracy. It's not hidden. It's right out in the open. Kyoto lays the groundwork for it. And you enviro freaks that are all worried about global warming should look to the survivalist community and see a friend in us. We want solar panels. We want windmills. We want cleaner, more renewable sources of energy too. We just don't want to hawk our nation and sign away our Bill of Rights to get it. And if we can get both sides of the equation working on it, maybe we get somewhere. But it's not happening. And the divide is growing deeper. And all of these things are adding up to make rational, calm Jack go, you know, it's getting worse. On top of this, I received an email about three weeks ago. I should really do a whole show on this. But I can't remember the guy's name. It's like Avi or Ari or something like that. He's an Israeli. He was Goldemir's personal bodyguard. And he sent an email to this person, or this person got a copy of an email that he sent, and what his message is to America. And it's basically that we're going to be attacked in the first half of 2009 by terrorists. It will not be an airplane or a building or anything like that. It will be soft targets like a shopping mall, uh, schools, uh, sporting events. And it's sporting events, instead of thinking, oh, the NBA Finals or something that's big with lots of security, it'll be like a big high school football game or something like that where there's lots of soft targets. It's going to be done by homegrown terrorists, and uh, it's imminent, and it is coming, and our government is not telling the people how to look out for it, how to watch out for it, and they're not even willing to accept the fact that it's real. And again, this guy's credibility is one, Goldemir's bodyguard. He was the guy that led the attack, if you saw the movie, uh, I think it was called Berlin, about the attack on the Olympic athletes from Israel that led the reprisal attack. He's been working at top security positions for the Israelis for years. He said he did an experiment where he went out and for our government and he put a suspicious looking suitcase in like seven U.S. cities. It was six or seven U.S. cities to see what people would do. Would anybody report it? In all but one case, it was ignored. And somebody in Chicago, instead of reporting it, tried to steal it. So, he said in Israel that the Israeli civilians would have immediately identified it, conducted their own evacuation, yelled, unsupervised uh, package, conducted their own, uh, what do you want to call it, evacuation from the area, notified authorities and assisted authorities with getting everybody out of the area. That's what civilians in Israel do. In the United States, we ignore it or we try to steal it. And that this is coming. So all of this together, I look at it and I start to say, we need, we need to really get more serious about everything we do. Because bad things are happening and it looks to me like the people that are supposed to be protecting us are either culpable with the enemy or asleep at the switch and I leave it to you to decide which one it is. And this isn't anti-Obama. This is anti-everybody. Because the Republicans had control for six years with the Congress, the Senate, and the Presidency. And they let it go this way. And then the Democrats had control with a Republican President for a term and they let it go this way. And now the Democrats have control of everything.
everything, and they're doing the same thing. We asked for hope and change when we voted for Obama. Yes, y'all did, because I didn't vote for the guy. But that's what was promised, hope and change. We're not getting hope. I'm not seeing any hope. We're not getting change. The government spending more money is not change. The government doing more pork projects is not change. One side of the aisle trying to ramrod down the throats the other side of the aisle what they want is not change. All we're getting is the same thing from a different group of suspects this time. So, I urge you when I talk a little bit about gardening and composting today to realize what a difference that can make in your life. That all of these things are why we do this stuff. And it might seem totally divorced from gardening to be talking about Goldemir's bodyguard or Obama being incompetent in how he's dealing with the Middle East or the, the Venezuelans you know, increasing their armament and giving more powers to Chavez and all these different things. It's just like, how are these connected? Well, they're connected because when something goes wrong anywhere, it creates a problem everywhere today. That's the global marketplace that we live in. If the Venezuelans attack somebody, not us, not even one of our allies, just the Venezuelans decide they want more territory and they attack somebody, it's going to cause us problems. If the uh, government of Pakistan doesn't come under terrorist control, but comes under a, a, a political group who is closer to the way that the terrorists think, it's going to cause us problems. And it's going to raise the price of things, and it's going to cause economic troubles. And everything that occurs today... It's like a, a domino set that just starts knocking other domino, dominoes over. So we need to prepare for that. And one thing we can do is take control of our food supply. And at least be able to produce some of our own food. So, coming down a little bit and calming down and being more logical, rational Jack, what I spent this weekend doing was actually putting in another raised bed. I put in a raised bed that's 4 foot by 8 foot uh, by about 9 inches high. But then I removed about 6 inches of earth. So now you're looking at 15 inches of depth. And I have about another 4 or 5 inches of what's down there that was all broken up and loosened up with a garden fork. So you have plant roots that now can go down, you know, almost 20 inches total. And about 15 inches of fill. So what I want to tell you about today is one the, the, my special mix that I used to fill my raised beds. Um... And why I choose what I choose, how it's different from, let's say, what the guys that do square foot gardening use. Um, And it's nothing against them. It's just I found what works for me, and I want to explain what the results are if you follow a certain schedule of planting crops from a new bed to through its first season and what you can have in your second season if you do that. I want to talk a little bit about composting in general because we're throwing too much food away. We, we throw away scraps, and anything that's organic that's not meat, you can compost. And it's much better being composted in your backyard in, in a heap, a bin, a pile. I don't care what it is. Even if you just throw it somewhere, you're better off doing that than sending it to the dump. We really are. And it would reduce the you know solid waste that we produce uh, by a massive amount if most Americans would just start doing a simple composting. So that's what I'm saying to the people that are like what I call the eco-free. All the things that you want, all right, outside of pledging allegiance to the cult of Al Gore and signing away our sovereignty, most other people want too. We want more fuel-efficient cars. We want more people gardening. We want more people throwing away less garbage, recycling. It's all good. So let's see if we can talk about some environmentally friendly things without having to make a, you know a political case out of it. So anyway, 
What is my mix for organic gardening? This is something I think that maybe will be very useful to you if you try it. And then my planning schedule after I use this mix. Into a 4 foot by 8 foot bed with, uh, again, about 6 inches of earth removed and 9 inches of rise, which is 3 landscaping timbers. So we're talking about uh, 15 inches of depth. I put the following. 10 cubic feet of store-bought compost, unless you have your own. And I've kind of run short on compost lately and have had to start buying some to do these new projects. So 10 cubic feet of um, compost. I put in a 3.3 cubic foot bale of peat moss. Now, the reason I use a 3.3 cubic uh, foot bale, that's what they sell in the big bag. I didn't do any kind of math to figure that out. It's not special. It's not Jack's super secret knowledge. That's just what I ended up using because it was the bigger of the two bales and I got a better price per foot by buying the bigger bale. So 10 cubic feet of compost, 3 cubic feet of peat moss. It's about a 30% to 70% ratio there. I also then used 3 bags, 40 pound bags of well composted cow manure. Two bags of mushroom compost, and I mix that very, very well together. And then here's my secret add-on to it. This is the two things that I add right up front before I even plant. I usually let this sit for a week or two before I planted it. But right away I add a double dose of blood meal. Whatever brand of blood meal you buy, you'll see per square foot you use a cup or two cups. Whatever that says on whatever brand that I buy, I double it. And this is after it's all mixed. I sprinkle that on top and very lightly turn it into the soil. And uh, But before I, do, I turn in the blood meal, I turn in a 40 or 50 pound bag. I can't remember what size bag they sell it in of something called green sand. Now what green sand has is all types of micronutrients and minerals in it. And even though you're putting it up near the surface, as you dig, as you plant, as the water permeates the system, the sand will work its way deeper and deeper and deeper into your bed and down into the subsoil layers. That is kind of a shot in the arm. It's kind of a steroid for your gardening. All right? Then the blood meal is just this instant shot of highly bioavailable nitrogen, along with some other, uh, you know, phosphorus and potassium as well. But nitrogen is what you're really giving there. And it's also something, believe it or not, blood meal is highly consumable by earthworms. And when you first put this mix together, one of your goals is to attract earthworms. This will go a long way towards starting that process. Now, I said we're going to talk about composting today, but before I talk about, you know, individual composting a bin or, or, or using, you know, worms for composting or anything like that, I want you to realize that in this bed you're actually doing active composting while you're using the bed. And a lot of people, you said, well, I'm going to compost in my garden bed, would say, whoa, 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 you can't do that. While you're composting and things are breaking down and rotting, it, uh, it gets hot and it'll burn roots. And it you know, produces, first it takes all the nitrogen in, and then it's all released. So you can either get nitrogen, you know, lack of nitrogen for your plants, or even kind of a nitrogen burn uh, before the compost is fully composted when it's kind of in that initial stage beginning to release it. And they would be right. 
But I'm not talking about getting a big pile of straw, a big pile of grass, a big pile of leaves, and uh, you know, a big pile of dead fruits and vegetables and mixing them into your bed. I'm talking about the mix that we just discussed and its natural composting uh, process that it goes through itself. One of the things you put in there is peat moss. And peat is ancient. It's been around for millions of years. And it's all laid at the bottom of these peat bogs. But when you start to mix it with soil, over time it chemically begins to change and it begins to break down. It forms its own form of compost, for lack of a better term. And what it is when you put it in there, and even what it kind of changes into, remains very, very water absorbent. And it retains a lot of water for you, and that's why you use it. It also needs to have time to mix with your compost in any soil. Because no matter how much you turn the soil, mix it. I have a little mini tiller that I use. None of these things are really going to get a good mix. It's over time. As water infiltrates your system, it begins to cause these things to bind with each other. And then as the microorganisms move into your beds, they begin to break down and create structure themselves. And as the earthworms crawl through, they make tunnels and caverns and they secrete their slime. And the slime is wonderful. And you know how slime wonderful? It causes the dirt to clump together in little balls, little tiny balls of five or six different grains of dirt. And it gets this wonderful structure. And you can have soil like that in one season if you follow the procedures that I'm giving you. Now, so I've got my green sand, right, and and, and I've got uh, my my blood meal added and my, my compost and everything else. What if you're not full at this point? What if you still need more uh, in your bed? Because when I do this with that bed I just described, that doesn't seem like enough cubic feet to fill it if you do the math, but yet it always fills it with about that much. I might use 11 bags of compost. I might even use 9. What happens over time is that stuff's very, very fluffy, and you want to keep it as fluffy as you can, but after you water and it sits for a couple weeks, it starts to settle, and you'll have to keep topping it up uh, as you plant and as you continue to turn things. Just keep adding compost. Good compost, whether it's from yourself or something you buy. Now, here's the big secret to getting your bed started quickly and turning out gorgeous soil. If you've already built beds in the past and you have other beds that are doing wonderful, one of the things that's in there that makes that deep, rich, black, fertile soil that you can grow so much production with is microorganisms. There's funguses, there's molds, there's beneficial nematodes, there's worms, there's eggs of worms, there's all kinds of little good guys in that soil. Now, You build new good soil, eventually they will come. You build it and they will come, right? But, since they have the ability to reproduce so quickly, if you take four or five shovelfuls of dirt out of one of your previous seasons or older beds and put that into your new bed, you accelerate everything. And then, here's my planning schedule for a brand new bed. The very first thing I plant in a new bed is beans or peas, some sort of legume. The reason is that they produce nitrogen. And even though there's tons of nitrogen in that compost, and there's tons of nitrogen in the blood meal, and I use Garrett juice, which is a great uh, organic fertilizer I highly recommend, even though that's all there, 
Um, that first year, it's not all as available as you would like it to be. The blood meal is, the Garrett juice is, but a lot of the stuff that's in the compost is going to take time for it to release well. So by giving it a little bit of the blood meal and, and the Garrett juice and the green sand and all the compost all together, it's enough to get beans off the ground, and they always do good their first their first season. If it's cold like this year, I co- as soon as I finish that bed, I covered it with black plastic, and I'll keep it covered for about another two weeks to heat that soil up, maybe add a little fresh compost and I'll go ahead and plant my beans for the years for the year. I'll also inoculate them and I'll plant a mix in this particular bed of green, yellow, and purple bush beans. And uh, so that'll be a quick crop. Bush beans, unlike pole beans, don't produce all year long. I want a quick crop from these beans. I'll get about two really good harvests from them. I'll blanch them and freeze them. And then I'll take the first crop out. And this will be a 60-day to 70-day period before I start harvesting. I'll harvest for about a month. So we're looking at June. We're done, somewhere in June. And what I'll do is I'll take a hoe. And even though these bean plants are still producing a few beans here and there, I could probably milk one more harvest, I'll chop them up. And I'll turn them into the soil. I'll leave their roots intact. And all those little nitrogen nodules and all that green manure is what they call a crop like this will go into the soil. I'll wait about two weeks for it to begin the process of breaking down. It's probably at that point, too, that I'll dump uh, a good pile of uh, redworms into the garden. Because uh, now I, now they're not in danger of being chopped up and hoed up. I've done that for the year. And they'll help to start breaking that stuff down as well. Once that's done and it's ready to plant again, uh, the soil is still going to be a little bit nitrogen deprived because it's breaking down all that green manure. Um, and it's going to be going through some basic composting action. Ground's going to be nice and warm. The soil's getting warm, being hit by the sun. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to plant greens and lettuces that do well in the heat. They don't produce a fruit. I'm not going to put any. I'm not going to put tomatoes in there. I'm not going to put peppers in there. Now, don't be afraid. If you if you are starting out and you want to grow peppers your first season, you can. I'm just telling you, if you have other beds and you're bringing new beds along, this is the way to do this. This is kind of a progression to follow. So anything I can plant, orach, amaranth, uh, endive, lettuce, any kind of a green plant that doesn't really need a long time to grow and doesn't really produce a seed, I'm going to grow that in there. Even things like carrots, onions, stuff like that. I am not going... Carrots and onions I plant direct so Anything else, I am going to start the plants indoors or in a greenhouse or on the deck in a box. I am not going to put seeds into that ground while it is dealing with kind of this first year. I'm going to give the plants a good head start, nice deep roots, let them get down into where all those rich subsoil nutrients are and get them started out. As soon as I plant them, I'm going to drench them in a good foliar uh, plant food like garret juice and get them off to a really great strong start. They'll do wonderful in that bed. Absolutely wonderful for you as long as you water them and keep giving them a good feeding maybe once every two to four weeks with a product like garret juice. All right? 
when that harvest is over, you're looking at a 90-day crop there, folks. Uh, greens are, you know, 90 days maximum. So you're looking at June, July, August, into September. By then I have more plants ready, and it's basically the same stuff. Greens that will hang on into winter. So now I'm looking at cold-weather lettuces, spinaches, more onions, more garlic, more things like that. And I'll plant them, and I'll grow them right through until the frost gets to be too much for them and knocks them out. At the end of that season, and in Texas it's a long season, so we're talking December. And some of them could even be hanging around December, but I'll probably just cut them off at the base and put that bed to sleep for the winter. By then the leaves are on the ground. I'll go out, I'll rake a huge pile of leaves, I'll run them over with the lawnmower, grind them up and chop them into fine bits. I'll put about one standard size wheelbarrow of chopped up oak leaves on the top of that bed. I'll turn that over. And then I'll cover that either with straw mulch or I'll cover it with newspapers and lay down a layer of any type of uh, hardwood mulch or cypress mulch or something like that to hold it down, keep the moisture in. And I'll let that bed alone until spring planting time. About two to three months it'll spend like that. When you pull back that top and you dig into that earth in that second season, and I should probably post a picture of like a last season bed that this has been done with, and then this season's new mix, and show you the difference just in the color and the look of that soil after one season, you absolutely will not believe it. And it'll be the soil that when you look at it, you'll go, oh my God, that'll grow anything. And you would think just by throwing compost in there and starting it out, you would be there right away, but you really won't. It, 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 it doesn't work like that. It takes time. Compost is wonderful, but in of itself, it's limited to what it can be. It's just that compost actually breaks down into true topsoil and binds with these other things, including your subsoil, that you really begin to produce something that's truly fertile and truly special. So, you know, that's 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 how I kind of advise you to do that. Now, there's a couple things I want to advise you of. Number one, if you buy your compost from Home Depot or Lowe's, there's a brand of compost called Scotsman's Choice or Scott's Choice or something like that. Don't buy it. It's garbage. And if you're from Scott's and you're pissed off at me, I'm sorry. Your compost, anyway, is complete garbage. And you might say, well, compost is supposed to be garbage. What I mean by it is it's not done yet. It, it, it looks like black uh, shift mulch. It doesn't look like compost. It doesn't feel like compost. It doesn't smell like compost. I don't know what it is. It could be half-done compost. Maybe it is compost, but it's all from one type of source. I, I don't know what, but don't use it. And if you do, you know, you can use ten bags, maybe use one or two bags of it for some variation. I, I, I wouldn't harp on you for that, but if you're looking for, like, to lay a layer of compost down on the top of your soil uh, for fertilization and for mulching, don't use this crap. It's junk. There's a brand there, something organic compost is what it's called. It's a blue and white bag. I found it at Lowe's and Home Depot both. It's very, very good. You'll know the bag if you see it. Uh, I can't really talk about other brands of compost. I can't just by name or, or site uh, give you any of them. But, but those are two that I can tell you, one good, one bad. Another thing, though, is... Even if you find good compost and you're buying your compost, if you need you know ten cubic feet, five bags, don't buy all one brand. Buy two of one, three of another. Maybe two of one, two of one, another, two of a, of a third, and use six bags. But mix it up because a lot of manufacturers of compost get all their material from one primary source. So you'll get more variation that way, and that's better for a healthy ecosystem. Uh, so that's a little bit of buying advice. On actually composting, 
There's a million different ways to build a compost bin. The biggest mistake, though, that people make with their composting is putting all of one thing in there. Again, uh, a giant pile of oak leaves by itself isn't going to compost well. It's just not going to ever really compost well. You need to mix greens and browns together. And as much variety as you And there's all these formulas for, well, 10% of this and 20% of that. And frankly, folks, I don't have time for it. I don't have time for it at all. All I know is when I throw a whole, what I'll do also, I talked about running oak leaves over with a lawnmower. That really speeds the process up of them breaking down. So maybe, you know, uh, the compost uh, bin could use a little bit more com- uh, material in it. So I might go rake up a pile of leaves, and I just leave them lay in the backyard. I don't care that there's leaves in my backyard. I don't worry about it. And I'll rake a pile up, and I'll run them over, and I'll throw a wheelbarrow full in there. And then I'm like, okay, well, I just did that, and I'll go out in a place where I haven't cut the grass for a while, and I have some pretty high weeds that haven't gone to seed yet, because you don't want weed seeds in there. And I'll just go through, and I'll take the wheelbarrow down with me, and I'll just pull it out of the ground. And I'll throw some greens in there to go with it. And I'll go in the house and go, what's in the refrigerator? Here's a cantaloupe that's a little past prime and, and what have you, some coffee grinds. And I throw that in there and I try to be adding multiple things. Anytime I add one thing, I try to add something else. Great thing to compost is coffee grounds. Best source of coffee grounds, Starbucks. Go buy any Starbucks, tell them you want coffee grounds. They'll either give them to you or save them for you and you can come back and get them later. And uh, you can get more coffee grounds than you can use from your local Starbucks. And that's a great source of variety to add in. One of the things that we've done at home, speaking of coffee, to make sure that we don't like just throw stuff away. It's 7 o'clock, it's dark outside, it's cold outside, it's raining, and I have just cut up a head of broccoli. And I've got the stalks and the leaves. I don't feel like going outside and putting it on the compost bin. So I took one of those big Folgers red plastic coffee cans uh, from our coffee storage when that was empty. And it's got a nice plastic lid on it. I keep it under the sink, and we throw stuff in there. And uh, once we get it half full, we take it outside and dump it on the compost heap. That's made us a lot more, uh, you know, a lot better about composting instead of throwing the potato peels in the garbage or throwing the old carrots away. Is actually having a place for them to go. And of course, anything that comes out of your garden that can be composted um, should go in the compost bin. So you grow broccoli plants, you're done with the plants for the year, they're not producing heads anymore, you cut the leaves and the stalks up and in they go. A lot of things that you'll want to compost will do better if you get a trip chipper or a shredder and shred them first, especially things like corn stalks, amaranth stalks, anything that's big and woody and, and, and uh, even like pepper plants. Once pepper plants get large, their stalks are quite uh, woody. They look like small twigs off of a tree. If you run those through a shredder or a chipper, they'll do much better. A lot of your other things you can accelerate simply, again, throw them in a pile, run a lawnmower over them, and dump them into your compost pile after doing that. Worm composting, okay, is probably one of the most overlooked and most beneficial things you can do. But there's three ways to do worm composting, and I think most people aren't aware of this. Number one is encouraging earthworm activity in your garden beds, direct activity. And one of the things you can do is order a couple pounds of red worms, use a half of them for you know some actual worm composting, and split the rest up and just put them into your raised beds and get the population off to a good start, as long as you have good quality soil for them. If you have crappy soil and you put no organic matter and you put worms in your soil, they'll leave. 
worms will leave. They just they won't stay there. So as long as you have good beds, throwing worms in there and then attracting them directly. One of the great items to add to your beds, your, your, your flower beds, your garden beds, to uh, keep the worms around and keep their activity going that doesn't have to be composted first is coffee grounds. And you, and you don't have to mix those in. You just sprinkle them on the surface and the worms will come up at night and begin to consume them. And then, of course, excrete them in worm castings, which is probably the best form of fertilizer in the world is worm castings. High in nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Completely organic. No bad smell or odor. They're, they're like the perfect fertilizer. So, if you have a lot of worms actively doing their, their daily living in your beds, you don't really need to do a lot of composting with them. Uh, you still probably want to, but you don't really have to. All right? You just need to keep adding new layers of compost and new organic matter so they have something to eat. That's one of the big reasons that at the end of the season with a new bed, I chop up a big pile of oak leaves and put them in there to give the worms something to eat. All right? So, the other way of worm composting that's often not thought of is if you have a big compost pile, you can often just throw some redworms in there. And if you get the, the, the there's a certain type of redworm that deals with the, the hot conditions of a compost pile pretty well, and they just stay out of the core where it's actually breaking down. They know, okay, it's too hot there. They go below it. They go above it. And they will do a lot. They will accelerate your compost activity. You need to be a little bit careful then when you mix your compost up. You don't kill too many of your worms. But the beautiful thing is they're leaving castings while they're helping the composting action happen. And they're laying eggs, so every time you take compost, even if you you know sort out some of your worms, even if there's no worms in that compost, odds are there's worm eggs in there. So now you're increasing your population outside. The third type of worm composting is what most people think of, and if you type in worm composting in YouTube, it's what you'll see. And it can be elaborate. You can go out and buy a custom-made bin for worms that has multiple layers and all, or you can go get some Tupperware and put it together. And I'm not going to describe that process in depth today, because I'm getting really toward the end of this show, uh, but suffice to say, if you go out and Google it or search for it on YouTube, you'll see all different ways to do this. There's a couple main things, though, that you need to think about with your worms and keeping them happy and healthy uh, if you want them to do a good job composting for you. One is you have to have holes in the bottom of your container and some really nasty-looking goo slash liquid is going to come out of there. So if you're making your own instead of buying one, you need to get maybe, let's say, two Tupperware uh, things, put holes in the bottom of one, and put it inside the other. And then let that goo soak through. Do not throw it away. Mixed with some water or even straight added to your garden, it is amazing fertilizer. I like to take it and mix it about half and half with water and actually just use a watering can and water that right on the plants. It is absolutely, if you're doing that once, you know, you do that once, two weeks later you do garret juice. Two weeks later you do that again, it will do amazing things for your garden. Um, so that's something to look at as well. And be aware of anyway that that's you know something you have. If you just put holes in it and set it in your closet somewhere, a lot of people do this indoors, and there's no reason not to. It does not smell bad, but if that goo gets all over your floor, you're going to be upset and you're going to also waste it. Um, 
So that's a big thing to think about. The next thing is you don't need any dirt. These, the, red, the worms you use for composting, red wigglers, don't need dirt. Uh, you need a bedding that's made up mostly of shredded newspaper and maybe a little bit of straw and give them that, and they will actually digest and eat and consume that as well as all the other food that you uh, put there for them. That bedding needs to be moist at all times but not wet. It needs to feel about as damp as a well-wrung-out sponge. If it's too wet, it will make your worms miserable, and they will try to escape. And if they can't escape from the too, you know, too much moisture, they will actually drown. Worms do not do well, believe it or not, underwater. They drown underwater after a certain amount of time. They need to be able to get into this kind of a, a moist but not wet area, or they can't survive. Into that bin, then, you can throw any organic matter. Tea bags, coffee grounds, orange peels, uh, potato peeling, anything other than meat. You never compost meat, and you never feed meat to your worms. It will stink, it will rot, it will probably end up festering into some kind of a fungus that will eventually kill your worm colony. So no meat for the worms. Worms are vegetarians and that's what they are really designed to be. And when you hear somebody say that when we die we all become worm food, it's true, but not red wigglers. Red wigglers are not the particular variety of worms that end up turning people into uh, worm food. And I'm dealing with more idiocy on the highway, folks, as I try to wrap up today's show. So, excuse me, as I pause right there, as some jerk just slams on the brakes. But this ride home has been much better than the ride you guys missed with me this morning. Um, That really kind of wraps it up. I want to talk to you a little bit about using your worms compost after they're done with it. You really kind of, if you want to do this right, I believe that you should run two worm bins. And, or you can run, the ones that you can buy are actually pretty good, that are like four layers, and then you just keep adding food to different layers, and you end up taking the stuff out of layer one and using it, and then moving it back to layer, you know, to the top, and using it again. Those work pretty well. If you're going to do it with like a homemade bin with some Tupperware bins, running two is really a great way to do it, because what you do is after a certain amount of time, you just kind of look at your bed and you go, okay, I'm not going to put any more food in there. And then you uh, you create new bedding and, and a little, you take a little bit of the castings that are in the first bed and a little bit of the rotted bedding and about half of the worms and move them to the second bin. And you start putting your food in that second bin and you just leave the other bin until the worms pretty much are going to run out of food. And at that point, you sort through and pull all the worms out, put them in the new bin. Anything that's not been digested or broken down yet, move to the new bin and separate out your castings. And then you can use those to fertilize right into your beds. This is the big thing. And a lot of people don't realize how big a deal this is. Not only are you taking, and worm castings, you would think that worm poo, which is basically what this is, would smell bad. They're eating all this garbage, but... It feels like dirt. If you put it in somebody's hand, they would say, that's rich soil. They wouldn't even know that it was worm poo until you told them that's what it is. So not only is it this great structure builder for your soil, not only does it have all these nutrients and and, and nitrogen and micronutrients, and and it's going to do so much for your plants, but in those castings are literally, by this time, millions of eggs. And when you're putting those castings into your garden, 
unlike something you might buy commercially that might have been heat cured or something, because they don't want the little worms hatching in the bag that sits on the shelf for eight, you know eight months at Home Depot. So unless you're buying worm castings from a worm producer directly, that's these were produced yesterday. Most of the time, they heat cure castings to kill the worm eggs. When you take your own and put them into your garden, millions of eggs go in there, and they hatch, and millions of tiny red worms infiltrate your garden, and they are the soldiers of your garden. And if you can get a, a good uh, combination of red worms occupying one layer of your soil and night crawlers, which generally like cooler, damper, deeper uh, burrows, and you can get night crawlers and red worms working together in your garden, your garden will be phenomenal. As long as you keep some good organic matter going in there every year so they have something to eat. As long as when you cut down your crops for the last of the year, maybe you lay them on the surface and mulch them down with straw. You will always have phenomenal soil and phenomenal results. And I know, again, we started out with Jack kind of going ape about Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Pakistan and, and Hugo Chavez. And, oh, my God, and we ended up with this grounded, centering podcast on composting and gardening. But the two are related, folks, and don't think that they're not. They're related from everything from the global fascism of a company like Monsanto to the fact that you might find by this summer or Next summer, who knows when, the price of food doubling or tripling. It already happened. Everybody's like looking at it now and going, eh, you know, we got other things to worry about. But food prices that went way up never really came back down. My grocery bill didn't go down. I don't know about you, but mine didn't go down. And the price of goods and services and foods and commodities are going to keep going up. And the more control that you take, the more you control your own destiny. And the more you'll be equipped to survive whatever comes your way. Because again, in this globalized world that we've been forced into, when something goes wrong in Venezuela or Russia or China, it's only a matter of time until it affects us right here at home. And hopefully it will stay that type of an effect and we won't end up with any of the real nightmare scenarios, but those are out there too. But remember, what we talk about here every day is living a better life. And living that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And good, solid, organic gardening can be a big part of that. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Hoping I've helped you figure out today a little bit more about how to live that better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.